Good evening, church. Thank you, all seven of you that's, that just bear, just told nature, just looked nature in the face and said, I have windshield wipers for this. God bless you. Hallelujah. Oh, my goodness. All right. So great to see you tonight. We are continuing on prayer, and we will stay here for a while. Somebody say good. good. Okay, there we go. We are continuing answering some questions. And so once again, if you have a question about prayer, I can certainly make up an answer, and then, you know, your pastor can fix it later maybe. But, um, but uh, via, via social media, uh, either my Facebook page or the Grace Covenant's Facebook page, feel free to post your questions there. But... Let me take just a few moments tonight and just answer a couple of those. Question, I'm in a situation that I don't know how to pray. Anybody ever been in one of those? A financial decision was made by my spouse (laughs) that I feel was unwise. Why do I feel like this was a wife writing this one? But it's already done. So can I pray for God to bless something that I feel was a mistake? It feels strange to stand before God and say, we blew it, can you fix it? Well, without being flippant about the answer here, we we always blow it. You know, many times we we, we think we present God these ideal set of circumstances whereby which he can breathe on them and all of a sudden life is good. But the reality is, even even when we are presenting God our very best, it's still compromised because it's still coming from you and me. So you didn't like that. And so we may as well learn how to pray, God fix it. Because you're going to be praying that prayer the rest of your life. And whether it's fix me, fix something I broke, fix something I broke in somebody. I mean, let me just tell you, this is just, this is kind of the starting point. And, you know, and, and for a husband and wife to not be in agreement about something, well, it's best if we can operate from that place. But I can tell you, it doesn't always happen that way. And so we just come to God the best way that we can and say, God, we blew it. Would you step in and would you fix it? Because this is just, this is just life. Come on. Question, what's the best time in prayer to be quiet before God to hear what he would say? Whatever works, baby. I mean, whenever you get the kids medicated and duct taped down, I mean, what? I mean, it's, and for different people, it's different times of day. I mean, my wife and I just we somehow, if the clock never did a.m., we would be fine. We're, we're p.m. people. There's no question about it. And so the idea that we're going to roll over early and we're just going to meet with God is just like God. God says, "You know, I appreciate the effort, but." Just going back to sleep. And when you're fully conscious, we'll have fellowship. How is that? And so I think for some people, you've just got to figure out how has God uniquely wired you with this? I mean, Scripture, scripture talks about in the morning, but it also talks about meeting God at midnight. And for some people, you're unconscious at midnight. Matter of fact, you, you may be unconscious by 9 p.m. I don't know. But you have to find whatever rhythm works. I don't think there's some magic in this. 
Do I believe it's good to acknowledge God upon your waking breath? Yes, it really is. And so whatever that looks like for you to acknowledge, good morning, God, thank you, I'm here. Help me today, Jesus. Whatever you got to do. So, it, yes, it helps to start your day that way, but that may not be your optimal time to fellowship with God, your spouse, your children, or anybody else. And so just find that time that works in the unique wiring that God's given you. Amen? Well, by way of review, we've talked about the practice of prayer so far. We've talked about overcoming some of the problems of prayer. We looked at the posture and the position of prayer, whereby which the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. And that righteousness, of course, being something that is imputed by Christ to us. But last week, we looked at the passion of prayer. Looking at this from the standpoint is, is our motivation one of obligation or is it one of privilege? Coming out of Valentine's Day, was it your obligation to be sure there were flowers in the house or was it your privilege to bring them to your spouse? Again, God appreciates our teeth gritting efforts. He really does. But he would really rather it come from a heart overflowing of affection for him. Psalm 69, 9, the zeal for your house consumes me. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, Christ's love compels us. And we learn that passion means is what we think about, what we meditate upon. Whether it's, you know, whether the Redskins have got a shot at it next year, whether it's what we're going to buy, what we're going to eat. The real question is, what are we meditating upon? That's part of how we can find our passion. Secondly, what we plan for and make provision for. We, all, we can find the time and the money to do that, which floats our boat, can we not? The tragedy of a passionless life, whatever. How hard it is to steer someone in any endeavor of life, that's just lukewarm. They just don't care. That's why many times it's just easier to bring somebody into a place of repentance where they've been running in the wrong direction as hard as they can than somebody that just feels like whatever. The tragedy of passionless life. That we don't wait to be pursued. This is part of passion. Christ pursues us because we were dead. We had to be pursued. Dead people can't pursue anything. And yet, all of a sudden now, once we've been made alive in Christ, the admonition is now what? You come, follow me. Meaning that now the onus is on you and on me to pursue. And that the priority of prayer becomes duty and drudgery without passion. But tonight I want to start a series within a series. And I want to get to the pattern of prayer. And we will be here for maybe three weeks, maybe four. And I want to look at some specific things about the pattern of prayer. Jesus' specific instructions for prayer, which we'll look at tonight. Historical prayers and creeds. A lot of folk went before you and I and they committed to the page some amazing prayers, some amazing statements of faith that can provide a lot of help for us and how to do this. And then looking at prayer in and of the Spirit, understanding the Holy Spirit 
as our intercessor. I hesitated to get here because we all want a pattern. Give me the outline. Give me the list. Let me check the box. Let me read the recipe and let me put all the ingredients together and I'll wind up with this wonderful product on the end. Because I think when we reduce something like relationship, prayer being a manifestation of relationship, when we reduce it to pattern, we've reduced it to something that God never intended for it to be. Other elements have to be in place, i.e. positional, motivational, passion, etc. Yet we do find specific patterns of prayer which are just that. A pattern or a form of something that can prove useful in either reproducing or creating the real thing. If you get a pattern of something, maybe the pattern of a garment... Or maybe the the pattern of something that you're going to cut out of a piece of wood. You're laying upon that something that the pattern is not the reality. The pattern is just simply a reflection of what the real thing is going to be. So we never want to reduce this thing down to just the pattern, so to speak. This was part of the problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees. Beyond just some pretty serious serious theological issues and some pretty serious heart issues, the Pharisees seemed to be satisfied with the patterns, going through the liturgy, going through the motions. Jesus had some pretty harsh words for their patterns. Luke chapter 11, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said, Teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Teach us. See, the disciples saw something about this unique time that Jesus had with the Father. Oh, they could assess the miracles. They could see the signs and the wonders. But the real question was, where is he getting this juice from? Where is, what is the dynamic? And they, and they, they wisely recognize there's something about the time that he is spending in this place every day. There's something about his prayer life that seems to be the engine that's making this God man work. So they wisely said, teach us to do this. How many of you know that's real smart? If you see someone that's got something that you want, you know, many times we think discipleship is a part, it's supposed to be initiated by pastors and leaders. The reality is you find something that you want from somebody else, you just go up to them and say, I want some of that. I'm a ministry junkie. Let me just tell you. And I've gone up to men and women that I've been in meetings and conferences with, and I, and I would just grab them unashamedly, said, would you pray for me? I want what you have. And the disciples saw something here. I want what you have. And it seems like that step is called prayer. Teach us to do that. See, they understood this. John, John 5, 19, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself, but only what he sees his father doing. Where do you think he was getting his instructions from? 
these moments of prayer. So we find some instructions. Jesus is teaching there the Beatitudes, Matthew, and sort of right in the middle of his, of his teaching, he begins to talk about prayer unsolicited. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've already received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans. For they think they'll be heard because of their many words, but don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now there's a lot of specific instructions and pattern right here in these statements. First of all, when you pray. There's no if, it's when. Like when you fast, when you give, when you do. So all automatically here we see just in the language that there is an expectation upon us when you do this thing. This was a big one then before men or before God. The unseen aspect, what is done in secret. You know, the Christian life is, is lived 90% underwater like that iceberg. That 10% that we see above the surface, it's what's done in secret. It's what's done in private. It's the giving. It's the serving that we do. When nobody can see us, nobody can say, boy, go champ. It's when there's none of those voices around our life. And we're just day in and day out. Whether it's our giving, whether it's our prayer, whatever it might be. Completely in secret. Because you see, once you get the attaboys, you just made a withdrawal from your heavenly account because you've already been paid. That's the problem. And when we don't have a good view of eternity, we're willing to settle that all of these things, we're willing to settle for that temporary, you go champ, you're amazing. Yes, you're incredible. And we just feel so warm and fuzzy and God is going cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. You've already received your reward, son. In full, you just cashed the check. Hmm. And there's no need for repetition. You know, we love to repeat ourselves, don't we? We love the sound of our voice. Or maybe we're in a moment and we just feel like if we could just keep saying the same thing over and over and over again, in the repetition, there's going to come some authority. There's going to come some result. Husbands and wives get in conflict and they just won't let it go. You know what I'm talking? I mean, they've just got to restate their offense, restate their position. And if they can just say it over and over and over again, oh my. The power of reputation. We do, with it, we, we do it with our kids. Somehow we think if we tell them over and over and over, and we train our children many times to wait for our repetition. 
Because they know they're not going to get whooped at number one, two, and three. But somewhere between seven and nine, that's when the proverbial wooden spoon might come out. And so we, we learn, we train our children to respond to the repetition. They think they'll be heard by the repetition. But it says, your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask. Hmm. See, there's vain repetition, but then there is persistence. Do you understand the difference in the two things? There's a persistence. Scripture says to keep on asking, keep on knocking. You know, the parable of the persistent, you know, knocking on that door. But that's not repetition. That's persistence. There's a difference. You see, many times our repetition is we are afraid that the person that we're speaking to is not listening or they're not hearing us. It's like someone who doesn't understand the same language you do. That somehow we think if we talk louder and slower, they will hablar espanol. How many of you know it doesn't help to talk louder and slower or say it again? It doesn't help. And yet many times we do the same thing with God. And I'm not talking about being persistent in our request. I'm talking about the fear that we're not being heard. See, that becomes a relational issue then. Hmm. So he goes on, Matthew 6, teach us to pray. This then is how to do it. And he gives us the pattern. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, how many of you know that this has to be right here the most important discourse on prayer ever written. This is it. Because it came from God himself. It didn't come from theologians. It didn't come from intercessors. It didn't come from the prophets. It came out of the mouth of Jesus himself. And yeah, I don't know about you, but somewhere we think that we've outgrown this. Oh, I got the Holy Ghost now. Oh, baby, I got, I got English and I got this other language out here. Oh, yeah, I've gotten sophisticated in my prayers. I've read some theology. I know how to use those big T-I-O-N words when I pray now. Oh, yeah, I got some, I got some missional in my prayers. You know, I mean, and so we, we do it for a while and we begin to feel like we've come into a little something, something. And we get sophisticated in our prayer life. And yet, you know, the Lord's Prayer is so incredibly complete, so incredibly simple, that your three-year-old can memorize this and they can understand it. And so I want to take some time and I want to unpack why what's here is here. 
Why is it called the Lord's Prayer? Not Paul's prayer, not Peter's prayer, not Moses' prayer, but the Lord's Prayer. Well, we find a number of unique elements here. And I want you to notice, even in the order that this is laid out, there's a priority that is established. Our Father, paternity. I'll unpack all these in a moment. Our Father in heaven, indicating position. Hallowed be your name, demanding praise. Going to be some peas if you haven't figured it out. Your kingdom come, the priority of this prayer. And then we get to the petition. Give us this day. Then we get to the penitence and the repentance part. Forgive us. Then the penitence extended and the patience part. Forgive them. Protection. Lead us not and deliver us. And then for those of you that maybe came out of certain denominational traditions, it's sort of a recap, a refrain on the end of the priority restated. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. little addition if you were raised a certain way. And if this is Jesus' pattern of prayer to his disciples, then could I submit to you, it might be that all of our prayers should somehow follow this form. And I'm not talking about too rigidly, but I'm talking about probably shouldn't be too divergent from it in terms of those elements that make up how we are approaching God. Because if Jesus himself said, this is the pattern, say these words, Believe them when you say them, but if Jesus established this pattern somehow beyond just the repetition of the words, somehow would it not be a template? Is anybody getting this? Somehow it should be a template that should inform the rest of our prayer life. Hmm. So let's look at this for a moment. First of all, paternity. And the word our, plural, interesting. He doesn't pray my father. He says what? Our father. Jesus is connecting not just himself to the father, but connecting what? Us to the father as well. There's something about this plural, this plural pronoun, which is really critical here. How much of our walk with God, how much of our discipleship, how much of our faith is lived in a first-person singular form? And yet right here, the very first word of this prayer is plural, our Father. He's He's not just mine. He's not just yours. But we're serving the same God together. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23 My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. Here's Jesus throwing the circle open and making it even bigger. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. 22, John 17. 
I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are, what? One. I and them, you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, it's, it's how we relate to God and then it's how we in turn relate to one another. Our. How do we do this together? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. Here we go. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. This is it right here. You want to figure out what is the deep meaning of life? What is this gospel? What is is God all about in this moment? This is it. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together. Our. Under one head Christ. Our. And then he goes on. It's our what? Father. Now, you know, there are a lot of words for God that could have been grabbed in that moment. I mean, we got all the Jehovah fill in the blank ones that we we learned as burgeoning charismatics so we could sing the songs and pray the right prayers. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah, you got all these, you remember these. But it's interesting that in addressing God in this way, he said, Father. Father, why? It's paternal, it's personal, it's intimate. You know, moms are moms are all that. But you know, there's something though that moms can't do that only dads can do. Now, if you're a single parent here tonight, let me just tell you, God has an amazing way to step in and be what needs to be done. So if there's an absence of a mom or a dad in your situation, let me tell you, His grace is sufficient. But there is something about dads, and not just that dads, dads can whoop harder than moms. But you know, you'll push your mom, right? I mean, you just, you'll argue with your mom. But when the dads step in, dads are like, I mean, you know, you'll be, you'll be dialoguing, you'll be negotiating, you'll be debating what time you can come in from the date or what time. And, and, you, and, and there'll be this back, and dad just says, Brr. And that's the end. There is no more discussion at that point. Because dads carry with them what? A certain authority. Like dad said it, that's the end of it. There is no more discussion. This rapidly changed from a dialogue to a monologue. This is now an edict. Dads represent this authority. They protect, they provide, they bless. Romans chapter 8 talks about daddy. It talks about a spirit of sonship that we cry, Abba, Father. Our Father. Our Father. What would happen if we were just to step back for just a second And we were to take a week 
and pray that our Holy Ghost, what does our really mean? Other than mine. What is, what, is, what is the fullness of our? Because when the fullness of that word is unpacked, our is not just those of us that sit together on Wednesdays and Sundays or in a small group. Our means an entire world that God intends to bring into his kingdom. Our hearts get bigger. When the revelation of our begins to come to us. Our Father. Not God. Not some aspect of God that we need Him to come in and, and, and do something in this area for a moment. But Daddy. Father. Everything that... What would happen if we were to spend a week praying two words? of the Lord's Prayer and asking God to unpack the reality of that in our life? Just a question. But then our Father, where? In heaven. It's a place that's not here. Say, duh. You see, our fellowship with the Father is now by means of who? The Holy Spirit. Who now dwells where? Inside of where? You and I. The Holy Spirit now is the one who is, if you wish, fully God, yes, but he is a conduit to the Father, to the Son. But the Father, his position is established, it is secure. He is seated where? Come on, saints. He's seated in heaven. He's unique. He is above. He's a place and position of all authority. Why is this important? Because it points us upward and not inward. Our Father, and then we can immediately begin to disappear in ourselves. But in this verbiage, our Father, who what? Who art in heaven. We are brought to something beyond this realm. We are brought beyond just you and me and our needs and our hurts and our destinies and desires and all those things that define us and consume us. But we're drawn upward in heaven. And you see, when we pray to a God that's in heaven, it ties our hope to eternal things. Titus chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus for the faith of God's elect, the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge, listen to this, resting on the hope of eternal life. If you don't have your hope tied to something eternal, you got a problem, it says here, with truth. Because it says that it's a faith and knowledge that rests on the hope of eternal life. Which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. I don't know about you, but I need to constantly be pulled out of myself. And not just because I'm a card-carrying introvert. But because I'm human, I'm earthbound, and I'm selfish. And I need to be pulled beyond me to something larger than I am. That I'm not tying my hope to an election. I'm not tying my hope to an economy. I'm not tying my hope to some ecclesiology. 
I'm tying my hope to something eternal. Our Father who art in heaven. Pastor Jim, you, 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 you squeezing a lot of juice out of this. Not nearly what most people have who've dived into this material. And then, how would be your name? That word hallow means to render sacred, to consecrate. Something that you do, you declare it to be so. Hallow would be your name. Interesting, the name of God. Why do we find that one of the commandments early on was to do what? Not take the name of the Lord in what? Now, we, many times, we reduce the meaning of this commandment to just not using God's name in conjunction with some ugly, some other ugly words. So we kind of reduce the essence of this command to don't cuss and use God's name while you're doing it. But could I submit to you that it's a much, much bigger commandment than just don't cuss and use, bring God into it. It's one translation says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You see, it's not dismissive or casual or disobedient. Psalm 8, 1. Oh Lord, how majestic is your what? Your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every what? Name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Proverbs 18.10, in the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run to it and are safe. And you see, that name, this hallowed, this set-apart name, it defines position. Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That there's something different even about the name. That at the name of Jesus, demons flee. At the name of Jesus, all of a sudden, the media and your co-workers get excited. Not God and higher power, but Jesus. Interesting who art in heaven. I'll stop there for the sake of time, but I'll just leave you with this. Position like this always demands praise. Because once you get pulled upward and you see as an Isaiah's commission, when you see him high and lifted up, when you see all of the angels and the seraphs and the seraphs and the cherubim, you see worship going on. You see where God is seated. Let me just tell you, it's not a matter of, I'm late and I don't like the song Robert chose this Sunday. I like his shoes, I just don't like his song selection. You know what? It doesn't play in anymore. Because when you get drawn up like this, 
You get drawn up in praise, and I'm sorry, but you're either going to do it or die. There is no choice. And we've only unpacked about a dozen words of this prayer. There's a lot here. Pray with me. Lord, thank you that you gave us instructions. You didn't tell the disciples, well, you guys go figure it out. But you said very clearly, when you pray, pray this way. Lord, let this, just this little bit this week, bring us to a different place. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let us get drawn out of ourselves. Let us get drawn up to something so much bigger than we are. Lord, help us in our weakness. Help us in our weakness. Teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.